0: We're continuing this morning in the the early part of Matthew's Gospel. And I don't know about you, but I find that we, we look at these stories, or just a few of them, around about Christmas, and then we ignore them, we forget them for the rest of the year, and we never really seem to get the opportunity to look at them in any detail. Now, I know that we are all very familiar with this part of the nativity narrative, but do we actually stop to think about any of its implications, what it really means, what it meant then, what it means for us? And this morning I want us to consider this passage not really from the perspective of Christmas, but from the perspective of something that should be part of the everyday life of every believer. Because you see, these verses teach us some valuable lessons concerning the nature of worship. Because as we look at the visit of the Magi, and for sake of convenience I'm going to call them the wise men because that tends to be how we know them. As we look at their visit, certain aspects of worship are revealed that should be true of our worship too. But before looking at that, I just want to look at a bit of the background. And really the most important question is, just who were these wise men? Well, they were from media. No, not the media. They, they, they weren't a first century news team. But they came from an area called media, which is more or less in northwest Iran, today these men were the the intelligentsia of a race called Medes they were or had been a warlike people and they were the masters of the Persians but they were almost entirely wiped out by the Persians who had actually been part of their empire and and were subjugated to the Medes, but they rebelled and defeated the Medes, leaving them with not too many survivors. And the sages amongst those people then decided, rather than devoting themselves to the study of war, they would devote themselves to the study of wisdom and spirituality. And such did their reputation become that they became highly sought after priests and advisors to the rulers of various empires in the first millennium B.C. And then around 600 B.C., ancient secular history and Bible history converged. The prophet Daniel was one of the Hebrew exiles taken into captivity when Jerusalem fell to Babylon. And he was trained up by them to be an advisor to the Babylonians and indeed so well did he succeed in his training that he served several kings of Babylon during the the 70 years of the Jewish exile and beyond. He saw, he witnessed the rise and the fall of Babylon. He was an elderly man when he died and living into his 80s He saw the exiles released by Cyrus, who was a Persian king, and he defeated the Babylonians in 538 BC. But Daniel had been held in such high regard, and his advice was so coveted, that when Cyrus freed the exiles, he retained Daniel, giving him a high position in the Persian Empire. He was skilled in the wisdom of the world. But more importantly, he also had a supernatural wisdom that came from the Lord. And because of that, he became a revered member of the Magi, their sages, the wise men. And his God-given wisdom saved the lives of other Magi on several occasions. And he was even declared by some of the secular kings as the greatest of the wise men. He wrote in both Aramaic and in Hebrew. He wrote in Aramaic for the people of the culture he served and in Hebrew for the people of God. His Hebrew writings are preserved for us in the scriptures with still more of his writings found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he was one of the Old Testament prophets who predicted the coming of Messiah, even giving a rather cryptic timeline. Now, it's absolutely certain that these wise men of media, living in Persia, continued to study Daniel's writings. They revered him as the greatest of their number. And they knew from his writings that a coming king would stand before God and be given authority over all people and nations. And wise men such as these studied not only the writings, but also they sought to interpret ph- natural phenomena. And then in the fullness of time, as they, they, they mused on Daniel's prophecy they were astounded by several remarkable astral phenomena. Brilliant lights in the sky. Around about 11 BC, Halley's Comet was visible, shooting brightly across the skies. Around 7 BC, there was an absolutely brilliantly bright conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. And in 5 BC there was yet another unusual astronomical phenomenon on the first day of the egyptian month of mesori sirius the dog star rose at sunrise and shone with an intense brilliance that had never been noted before interestingly the name of the month mesori means the birth of a prince By the way, if you're dubious about the dates, Herod the Great died in 4 BC, so the real date of Jesus' birth can't be dated later than that, which means that these phenomena would have been happening immediately before the birth of Christ, and they together would have put the wise men on red alert for the imminent birth of the great king, the one of whom Daniel had written. So it's natural enough that these men would go to the city where David, the great king, had reigned. As they anticipated, again, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. So he would go to David's city, Zion. That's the background. So now we can start to look at the worship of these men. In verse 2, first of all. Their worship was intentional. These men came to Jerusalem for the sole purpose of worship. Worship was why they left their homeland. Worship was why they brought their treasure. Worship was at the heart of everything we see them do in this passage. They had their hearts set on coming to the expected Messiah in order to worship him. Worshiping him should be Our deliberate goal, when we gather together too. Praying, praising, giving thanks, reading our Bibles, with worship in our hearts. It shouldn't be something that we just let happen around us. Because the worship team are singing or the the pastor's leading. It should be purposeful. It should be what we have come intending to do. Something we long to do. Their worship was an act of the will. They made a decision to go and worship Him. Nobody forced them to leave home, family, comfort, to travel across the desert to find the one born to be King. No one made them give their gifts. No one demanded that they should bow before the Lord in worship. It was an act of their will. Which is all that we need to know about how our worship should be motivated. That it also should be an act of our will. How? By actively deciding that we won't just go through the motions of worshipping but that we will intentionally focus on expressly loving the one who went to the cross for us. So we must never just sing because everybody else is singing. Don't just open our Bibles because it's time for the sermon. In fact, don't just go to church because it's a Sunday morning. Instead, we should deliberately decide that every song we sing, every prayer we pray, every Bible reading, indeed, and this is so important, that every deed that we do every day outside of a church context should be an act of worship that will intentionally glorify our Lord. Then in... Verses 2 and 9 through to 11, we see that they worshipped individually. They were, each of them, personally engaged in fully worshipping the Lord Jesus. Just think about what they did. They were a group of men, but they were individuals. There wasn't a team leader who said, right, we're all going. They came to this same conclusion. That what they had observed and what they had read meant that this was the time to go and worship. They came from a great distance. And incidentally, they came by faith. You see, they they, they hadn't read the Hatch Match and Dispatch column in the Middle Eastern Post and thought, ah, he's arrived. Now let's go and worship him. They didn't set off after the event. They set off in faith, in the belief that this is what God was doing. And then verses 10 and 11 develop this, showing just how they engaged their whole being in their aspiration to worship Him. They committed not only their treasure, but even their very selves to this intentional act of worship. You see, they rejoiced. When they found him, they humbled themselves before him. They lavished their individual gifts upon him. And I guess you've already worked out that what I'm going to say next is that our worship also needs to be our individual response to the Lord Jesus, to God. Our personal commitment to fully engage in worshipping him. We can't get anybody else to worship for us. We heard it said a number of times in in Spain that worship was sort of the point that divided between European churches and South American or Latino churches. Personally, I don't think it's got anything whatsoever to do with ethnicity. Ethnicity. To be honest, it's got everything to do with the heart attitude of the congregation, whatever their racial background. You see, there are some folks who let others do all of the singing, do all of the praying, do all of the praising. Just like members of an audience who are there to receive, to be entertained. Well, in reality, worship, authentic worship, does have an audience but it's an audience of one. The Lord Himself. Everyone else should be an active part of the worship team, whichever side of the microphone or the platform they are. We're all in this together to worship the Lord. This is a problem that it that it afflicts churches of all ethnicities, all races, all cultural backgrounds some church people never open their mouths in public at all to give God vocal praise neither in song nor in prayer nor in testimony nor even in thanksgiving for his grace and blessings in their lives yet this should all be part of our personal individual worship it can't happen by proxy we can't leave others to sing or pray or give thanks or testify or, or give generously or, or work practically for us on our behalf and at the same time think that we are actually truly worshipping the Lord even though the limit of our involvement is merely to occupy a seat in church on a Sunday. There's a very simple reason why our worship has to be individual and personal. The only person who really knows the height and the depth and the breadth and the enormity of all that the Lord has done for you is you. The only person who really knows the height and the depth and the breadth and the extent of all that the Lord has done for me is me. Others might know a bit of our story, but we alone know the bigger picture of what the Lord has done for us. You know these things for yourself, and I know these things for myself. The least we can do is to worship him for them. As the writer to the Hebrews puts it in chapter 13, Therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise To God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. Matthew chapter 2, it's better, and verse 3 brings us face to face with a rather maybe surprising aspect of worship. Sometimes it can be confrontational, militant, warlike even. And really we shouldn't be surprised. The book of Joshua tells us that when the Hebrews crossed into the promised land and the city of Jericho barred their progress, Jericho fell because of the worship rather than the military prowess. They did what they'd been told to do, and the whole thing was led by a praise band. And it was no isolated incident. In Exodus chapter 17 and verse 11, we read that the Hebrews only prevailed in battle against the Amalekites when Moses' arms were raised and kept raised in worship. But maybe the clearest example of all is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. When Judah and their king, Jehoshaphat, faced a vast army, we read the outcome in verse 22. When they began to sing and praise, and this was the praise team that Jehoshaphat had been the head of the army, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mansia, who had come against Judah, so that they all were routed. Here in Matthew chapter 2, it's no secret that not everyone was as overjoyed with the prospect of the Christ child being worshipped as these wise men. Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The major hadn't come to worship Herod. They hadn't come to worship in the temple. They'd come to worship the one of whom Daniel prophesied. Not a mere temporal ruler, nor via the rituals of the religious establishment. Giving unreserved, wholehearted worship to the Lord is always going to trouble, offend, or even infuriate someone. Not everyone will understand why we love the Lord. In fact, not everyone will think him worthy of love at all. And our songs, our passion, our praise, our testimonies, and our love for him will antagonize some people. Indeed, our spiritual enemy, the prince of this world, will often seek to oppose our worship because he hates it. Frequently in the past, Chris and I and and Esther as she began to grow into being part of our worship team there, we frequently found, especially when we were in relatively new church planting situations into, if you like, virgin territory, that we often had to deliberately and militantly keep on and keep on praising until we sensed that some sort of a breakthrough had happened in the heavenlies. Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. They show us something else that we must be clear about. Their worship engaged their emotions. When they finally got to the right place, they were overcome with emotion. Thank God they weren't English. Terrific show, chaps. Things have turned out awfully well, really. No, the Greek literally says they rejoiced joy great exceeding. This was high-spirited, exuberant and animated. They were bubbling over with the sheer pleasure of coming to see the one that they'd set out to worship. I guess as well as kneeling in reverence they were also shouting and laughing and crying and clapping and, I don't know, maybe even dancing. And when we come before him in worship, we too should be filled with that same exceeding great joy because there is so much to be joyful about even if there's a lot to be not happy about. Worship is intended to engage our emotions And to release an overflowing of joy. Now I know some people feel emotion is wrong in worship. I've certainly been amongst congregations for whom that was quite plainly true. But the scriptures disagree. Expecting that we will bring our exuberance and therefore our emotions into our worship. The hymn book of the Old Testament tells us to shout his praise. Psalm 98 and verse 4. To clap gladly before him. Psalm 47 and verse 1. To raise our hands in praise to him. Psalm 63 and verse 4. To dance before him. Psalm 149. Verse 3. And even to laugh before him. Psalm 126 and verse 2. In other words, to offer him obviously enthusiastic, unashamed, joyous, hmm, even undignified worship. It was one of those eureka moments for me. The first time I saw that the Spanish Bible often uses the verb adorar. When our English Bibles use the verb worship. Adorar, adore. A powerful, intimate, and deeply passionate word expressing human love and devotion. So, can I just say please don't ever criticize your brothers and sisters for emotion filled worship from their hearts, even if you might find it embarrassing. Better to be embarrassed before men than before the Lord. And don't miss this that here in verses 3 to 8, we see that the worship of these men impacted others. It had an effect on Herod, on Jerusalem, on the scribes. Their worship caused people to think, maybe fearfully. About God once more and to search the scriptures. But it actually also had an effect on the wise men themselves and their relationship with God. In verses 11 and 12 we see that they were brought into a place of deeper closeness and intimacy through their worship. They'd set out on their quest because of of what they knew of prophecy. They sought the Lord because of what they'd read. But their worship brought them into a place of new intimacy with the Lord who in verse 12 now addressed them through a dream personally and moved in power in their lives. Worship is still just as powerful today. It impacts the world around us. When God's people worship, Genuinely, in the Spirit, the world notices. Some will be driven away. Some will be antagonistic. But others will think about their relationship with God. But it doesn't just impact the world. It, it impacts us too. As we worship him more deeply, we sense his closeness His presence becomes more precious. His word becomes more powerful. Fellowship with other Christians becomes more joyful. And as we worship him, he responds by speaking to us in new and deeper ways. Sometimes in in supernatural ways, as he did with the wise men. And sometimes by simply opening the scriptures to us in in ways that give us a new excitement about the Word of God. The worship of the wise men was all of this, and it was sacrificial too. They didn't cut corners or costs, theirs was a tedious journey. Estimates vary as to how long it would have taken them. At least weeks, probably several months. They left their home hundreds of miles behind them. Such worship would have cost them a king's ransom. But they willingly paid the price because they had deemed him worthy of worship. Worship. Hmm. This English word, worship, comes from a group of Anglo-Saxon words. Together they mean to give someone their worth. In other words, to ascribe to them their importance to us. It's a bit colder than adorar. But it's still powerful because it tells us that how we worship God is actually a statement or an assessment of how valuable he is to us. What he's worth to us. How we spend our time in part reveals our evaluation of him. The world doesn't think Jesus is worth any time at all. And sadly some Christians only give him an hour or so each week and congratulate themselves for making the effort. Real worship demands an investment of our time every day of our lives. We can't be totally in the world all week and expect that on a Sunday morning we're ready to meet him in worship. It takes time to pray and seek the Lord's face. It takes time to bring our sin before him and ask him to deal with it. It takes time to prepare our hearts for worship. We need time spent in repentance of sin. We need time spent in feeding our spirits on the scriptures. We need time spent in private worship. I've met people who have gone to church for years. And yet they would admit that they've never really ever managed to truly worship. They've been through the motions. Could it be that they haven't put in any time or effort in private in preparing themselves to worship the King of Kings in public? I know I need to regularly remind myself of the need to worship him in private every bit as much as to read the word and pray. Now I realise that I've come close to identifying worship with what we do when we meet together in church. But as I've hinted, that's only one aspect. We talk about a service of worship and that's no accident. Our devotion to the Lord is expressed in how we serve him. And that involves every aspect of our lives. How we spend all of our time. However, It's not just how we spend our time, which may well be our most important resource. It's how we spend all of our resources. We Three Kings, Vori and Are, it's one of the best-known opening lines of any carol. It continues, bearing gifts, well in my version, they traverse afar. They traversed afar in virtue of having offered him the resource of their wisdom. Which equates to our learning, our talents, our abilities. When they got there, and by now Jesus was a small child and not just a baby, they opened their presents, giving him costly material gifts, no strings attached. Gifts that they'd guarded throughout their journey unwillingly gave to Jesus because they wanted to honour him in worship. Giving and worship go together because the only reason we've got anything to give at all is that he has generously given to us everything we've got. James, in his little letter, tells us in Verse 17 of the first chapter. Everything we have is a gift from God. The Lord has always been, always will be extravagant in giving to us. And as his followers, as his children, as his image bearers, we ought to be just as extravagant in our giving to him. We'll never outgive him so we can trust him for our own needs. Let's make it a life priority not to be cheap in our giving to the Lord, both of our substance and of ourselves. Because if we can't give to him extravagantly with no strings attached, we haven't really worshipped fully. there's an apparently illogical consequence too. If we're tight-fisted towards the Lord, we're actually inviting him to treat us ungenerously too. He speaks about this very clearly through the prophet Malachi. In chapter 3, and verse 8, we read these words, "'Will man rob God?' Yes, you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Verse 9 tells us the consequence. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. But then, in verse 10, the Lord throws down the challenge to prove his extravagance through our own generous giving. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. It seems almost absurd, and it's certainly countercultural. But if we hoard our treasures for ourselves, we are inviting economic ruin. For it's precisely in our economic life that robbing God brings us under his scrutiny and discipline. How much better to give everything into his hands and use what we've been given for the glory of the Lord. So that he is then free to bless us until we have no need of anything more. Now although these men were financially generous the greatest treasure that they gave to Jesus that day was themselves. Let's go back to what we know about these extraordinary men. They were known in Persia as the kingmakers because they anointed kings to rule over their territories. They were powerful, influential men. And forgive me if I'm just about to explode a Christmas tradition. Why do we sing about we three kings? Who said there were three? There were three gifts, yeah. But three kings? Honestly, is it realistic to think about three powerful Wealthy academics on their camels, trekking alone with their treasures across the desert. These guys are wise, not foolish. They would not have done that. And would the arrival of three Oriental mystics plunge the whole of Jerusalem into turmoil? these powerful men would have travelled as a major caravan protected by a small army. That's why Herod freaked out when they turned up on his doorstep looking for a king to worship that wasn't him. These men were powerful king makers, and they were now standing before a mere despot and declared their intention to worship another child king. No wonder Herod panicked. But when they found the child king, they fell down before him and humbled themselves in worship. Elite human kingmakers had come into the presence of the king of kings and by their actions declared that Jesus was the only king who was worthy to be worshipped. These great ones, educated, sophisticated, wealthy, powerful, laid aside all pride, and worshipped and adored a little boy, and honoured him as their king. The words they spoke in verse 2, and the gifts that they gave in verse 11, declared Their belief, I don't know that we can say it was saving faith. Maybe we can, depending on just how much they'd understood of Daniel. But they certainly declared their willingness to believe that here was God's promised, anointed Messiah. And they owned his lordship over them. As we approach Christmas, can I simply ask, are we wise men and women? Are we willing to deliberately, militantly, sacrificially worship the King of Kings with our time, our talents, our possessions, and our very selves? With unstinting devotion and exceeding great joy? Anything less isn't worship in the truest sense. Anything less isn't discipleship in the truest sense. May we pray together. Lord, we find ourselves humbled by the fact that these great ones of the earth put everything on the line to come and worship you. They stood not on their reputation nor on their wealth nor on their position but bowed humbly before you and in fact rejoiced with exceeding great joy when they found you they worshipped you they got to know you in a way that they hadn't done previously and you spoke to them and sent them on their way not via Herod Lord we simply would ask that we too might be true worshippers that we might not stand on our image or reputation but that we too would be willing to fall face down before the King of Kings and to rejoice with exceeding great joy because of all that he has done for us that he has given us a hope and a future that heaven's gates are open wide because of what he has done And not what we have done. So, Lord, we pray that in this Christmas season, this Advent season, we might rejoice for all of the right reasons. Lord, we bless you for the incarnation and we thank you that that is a significant key to our salvation. Thank you, Lord.